So this is the, the last uh, sermon in our current series in Isaiah. Well, that will be covered a lot of material. That's 23 chapters in just uh, seven uh, weeks. And the big issue that God has been speaking to us about these last weeks is the issue of trust. Who will you trust when the enemy is at the gate? Who or what will you trust when you hit a crisis? Who will you trust when your, your world is falling around all, all around you, your family's breaking up, or you're diagnosed with cancer, or you're struggling to pay the bills, or you're just so depressed? Where is your trust ultimately put in those situations? Is it in yourself or in other people's resources? Or do you trust the God who created you and has revealed himself to you in our Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, every day when we wake up, we are presented with that choice. Who or what are we going to trust? And if you've been with us these last weeks, uh, you will remember that the situation that Isaiah is preaching into is this. He's speaking to the king and people of Judah, and they're being threatened by other nations. And in the chapters that we've been uh, looking at, the big threat has come from Assyria. But instead of trusting and relying on God, they keep on looking to political alliances with other nations to protect them. So what Isaiah has been doing is been exposing the sin and godlessness of his people and warning them of the coming judgment that will fall on them because of their godlessness. But at the same time, God also, through Isaiah, proclaims his faithfulness to his people and gives them hope. The Assyrians will not destroy Jerusalem. In fact, they themselves will be destroyed. You may remember from the last couple of weeks how chapters 28 to 33 are organized around six woes that Isaiah proclaims. The previous five have all been concerning uh, Jerusalem and Judah. But at the beginning of chapter 33, the final woe is against Assyria. So have a look at that. Woe to you, beginning of 33 verse 1. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Assyria was conquering all before it. Hezekiah and Jerusalem tried to escape by paying tribute to the king of Assyria. But despite receiving the tribute, the king of Assyria attacked Jerusalem anyway. So Assyria was both a destroyer and a betrayer. But Isaiah chapters 36, 37 records, God intervenes dramatically to save Jerusalem. And that the king of Assyria is actually assassinated by his sons. So that's what chapter 33 is about. God is the righteous and holy king who will forgive his people and rescue Jerusalem from the Assyrians. But the scope of chapters 34 and 35, which we're going to be concentrating on this evening, is much, much bigger. See, when reading Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets, it's important to be aware of the various horizons that are operating. If you're standing on a kind of flat ground looking 
at uh, some kind of a range of mountains in the distance. The mountains look as if they're all on the same horizon. But the reality is that they're staggered. There are, in fact, multiple horizons. And it's a bit like that with Isaiah. Isaiah is addressing the spiritual and political situation of his contemporaries. But by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he's also looking ahead to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and also to the second time when he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we shall see, it is the final judgment and rescue which Jesus will bring to pass at his second coming, which is in Isaiah's sights as the section the section that we've been looking at comes to a close. Put your trust in human power, resources, and wisdom, and ultimately you will suffer eternal loss. That's what Isaiah chapter 34 is about. But chapter 35, put your trust in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you will enjoy eternal glory. And we'll look at each of those in turn. So first, chapter 34. The eternal folly of trusting in human power and wisdom. Verse 1. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. Here is a message for every inhabitant on the earth. All, was it current? Eight billion, is it? All eight billion of them. It's relevant to every one of us here. It's relevant to everyone we know. And what is the message? Verse 2, the Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. It's a message of total destruction. We've seen already back in chapter 28 that judgment is God's alien, his strange work. God is by nature amazingly patient and gracious. He is slow to anger and he abounds in love. But we must never confuse God's loving patience for a lack of concern for justice. God will not allow rebellion in his world to continue unchecked indefinitely. And in verses 3 and 4, God confronts us with the reality of his final judgment. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. My father, when he was 20, was leading 30 men into battle in the Normandy campaign in the Second World War. I can remember asking him what his abiding memories of that time were. And he said that one of them was the smell. He said that it was the smell of death, of decaying bodies because of all the animals that had been killed and all the uh, soldiers. It was everywhere. July 1944 was hot month. It's hot in the Middle East, the smell of the dead. It was something which would stick with you. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. 
You go for a walk in a national park and you come across a lovely waterfall, but this waterfall is cascading blood, rivers of blood. We don't come to come across scrolls these days. Verse four, all the starry, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Scrolls are not, not kind of part of our kind of experience, but the posters are in those tubes. You know how you did it? You, you pull up the poster, you unravel it, and you let go, and it just how it rolls up. Well, that's the picture here. That's what will happen to the heavens. Here's a picture of ultimate destruction. The stars will fall out of the sky like fruit and leaves falling from a tree. Here is the end of the world as we know it. And this imagery of the final judgment is the same one that is given to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. And there all the kings of the earth, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and free person, they hide in caves and call on the mountains of rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of God and from the righteous anger of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what happens in the rest of uh, uh, chapter 34 is that this general final judgment that is going to fall on the whole world is then applied to one particular nation, Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of uh, Esau, Jacob's brother, and throughout their history, they were antagonistic towards God's people. Verse 5, my sword has drunk its full in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment of Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them and the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. And that final verse, uh, verse 8, gives us a clue to what God is doing in this final judgment. Not only is he removing all evil and rebellion from his world, but he's also vindicating his faithful people who have been obeying him and trusting him. Here is God acting to deliver his people. Here is God bringing his judgment on those who have despised and ridiculed and harmed those who trust in Jesus. If you are being attacked or persecuted for believing and trusting in Jesus, as some of us, I imagine, will have been, certainly around the world there are Christians and brothers and sisters going through almost appalling oppression. Well, it is hard. And if there's no relief from the opposition, it can sometimes feel perhaps that God doesn't see or care or is unable to protect his people. But on that day, friends, there will be no doubt. And then the final imagery from verses 9 to uh, 17 is just one of utter destruction and desolation. 
So verse 9, Eden's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. There are echoes there of that uh, a dreadful judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verse, uh, verse 10, it will not be quenched night or day. His smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. Do you notice all the, the references to time in that verse? This judgment is not temporary or short-lived. It's everlasting, it's eternal. And then the rest of the chapter describes how Eden will become a, a wasteland, inhabited only by wild animals. And what is more, turn over the, the, the page and look at verse uh, 16. You see that, uh, look in the scroll of the Lord. It's written down in God's scroll. So it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. On uh, motorways, if you travel on motorways, uh, by the hard shoulder and the uh, central reservation, there are those uh, rumble strips, those kind of white lines with uh, ridges in them, and they're designed to wake you up. If while you're driving, you kind of, you you doze off and you veer off to uh, one side. Well, Isaiah 34 is like those rumble strips. It's designed to kind of wake us up to the eternal consequences of veering away from God and trusting in human wisdom, human power, human resources. Azar in these chapters is putting before us two radically and different eternal destinations. And just actually as Jesus did 700 years later, Azar is calling us to choose life rather than destruction. Uh, Matthew records in the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus urged those listening to him to enter through, through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, Isaiah is urging all of us here this evening to enter through the narrow gate and to travel on the narrow road. You see, for the people of Isaiah's day, for all the outward show of religious observance, their, their trust wasn't in God, in fact. And their, their national crises revealed that to be the case. Crises reveal what is going on in our heart. Crises reveal where our faith and trust is placed. And friends, if we're believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, or God is, you're aware that God is calling you to believe and trust in Jesus. Actually, God uses those crises that inevitably come our way in this fallen world and broken world which we live in. He uses those for our good. See, God wants to test and reveal to us and to others the quality of our faith. And his purpose in doing that is not to break us or to crush us, 
That's what the devil wants to do. No, God's purpose is that we might realize our weakness and our need and strengthen our trust in him. And I hope that is of some comfort for you if you're going through a particular trial at the moment. He is in control, and his purpose for you in this trial is to strengthen your faith. And as we see, he's putting before us these two visions of the future, the eternal future, so that we'll know where trust leads to. If we don't trust him, if we're one who's not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, not sticking with him, that's where that leads to. But as he goes on now to show us, actually, there is a much better way. Isaiah doesn't end this section, focus on the eternal folly of trusting in human power and wisdom. Rather, he would have our eyes fixed on the eternal joy and glory of trusting in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what chapter 35 is all about. So let's have a look at it. And as we've discovered through the series, Isaiah loves painting word pictures. And in chapter 35, he paints a picture that is a complete contrast to the the picture he's painted in chapter 34. Look at verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Uh, Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. See, chapter 34 ended uh, with the imagery of a desolate wilderness inhabited only by uh, wild animals. But when God acts to bring salvation to his people, he transforms an arid uh, landscape into a glorious garden paradise. In fact, so glorious and abundant is this garden that it bursts forth with, with shouts of joy. There's no stench of death here. Instead, there is beauty. There's the sweet scent of flowers and the sound of joyful singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and uh, Sharon. Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon, all places actually famed for their rich and fertile land. This is the kind of the Chelsea Flower Show on steroids. Have you ever been to the Chelsea Flower Show? No, I haven't. I haven't been either. Apparently, it's meant to be spectacular. I had a look to see when it's happening. This happens in the end of May, if you want to go. It's not cheap. Tickets are 85 quid. And the point is, actually, it's meant to be spectacular, but it doesn't hold a candle to this. And if you're trusting in Jesus, this will one day be your home. And the source of this glory and joy is the presence of God himself. Look at the last bit of verse 2. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. You can see something of the glory of God now as you look up on a clear night sky and see the moon and stars. 
That's pretty hard to do in London. You almost have to go up to Northumberland, I think, in this country to do that. But actually, when you go and do see if, uh, uh, night, uh, sky, it is it is breathtaking, isn't it? That sky just full of stars that tells us shows us something of the glory of God. We see the glory of God as we behold the Lord Jesus in the pages of Scripture, and here and about His death on the cross, which we will be remembering later on as we break bread and drink wine together. But then we shall behold the glory of God in its brightest and fullest colors. And just as the glory will be perfect, so will our joy. Have you ever had a moment when you've been kind of overwhelmed with thanksgiving and joy? The one that sticks in my memory was on a holiday on a Greek island when the kids were about six to ten years old. It was the first time the children had ever been in an aeroplane. And we managed to get a, get a, a deal. And there we were, uh, having a meal on a beach restaurant. Uh, I can remember we were waiting for the food to arrive, and I was uh, the family was all sitting around, and I was just looking at them. And it was just a wonderful moment, because the children were all happy. They weren't fighting. They were talking uh, nicely to each other. Becca was relaxed and smiling. I had a glass of Retsina in my hand, which was surprisingly good. The sky was blue, and I didn't have a care in the world. And in that moment, I was overcome with a feeling of utter joy and contentment and thankfulness, which kind of overtook my whole body. It was so intense that I have never forgotten it. But it lasted only a moment, and then it was gone. Well, I imagine the joy of the new creation will be something like that, but magnified many, many times and lasting forever. And it will be like that Because we will be basking in the presence of the God of all joy, of all love, of all glory. And friends, God gives us this vision to strengthen us. Look at verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Remember the situation of Isaiah's original hearers. The (coughs) The Syrians were surrounding Jerusalem. It was a perilous situation. There was no way they could get out of it. No wonder their hearts were fearful and their knees were shaking and giving way. And for some of us, the situation that we're facing is scary as well. And you don't think that you're going to get through it. But don't worry. Your God will come to save you. In fact, in our Lord Jesus Christ, he already has. You're completely safe in his hands. And the current crisis and pain will not last forever. 
Verse 5, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So throughout Isaiah, we get these glimpses of the new creation. In chapter 11, for instance, we have the picture of the, the perfect peace and harmony as the wolf lay down with the lamb and the leopard uh, with the um, goat and the child playing safely by the cobra's nest. Well, here is a picture of perfect health and fitness. Second half of verse 6. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the halts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Here is a, here is a beautiful oasis. My uh, eldest son, when he got uh, married, arranged for his honeymoon to be in St. Lucia in the Caribbean. The trouble is, he got so run down before the wedding that he was ill for most of his honeymoon. He was in this most beautiful place, but he couldn't enjoy it properly. But here is a paradise that puts the Seychelles and St. Lucia in the shade, and you have the health and the strength to enjoy it fully. When John the Baptist was languishing in prison, he sent some of his disciples to ask, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And uh, Jesus responded by quoting from Isaiah 35, amongst other places. That's what he said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the death here, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. See, Jesus is the one who is bringing about God's full salvation. And the miracles that Jesus did were not just many proofs of his identity, which they were. They were a foretaste, an anticipation of the paradise of the new creation, which he came to give us. And so if you're not yet trusting in Jesus... Can I please implore you to face his reality and accept his salvation he won for you as he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? History is heading somewhere. It is heading towards a final climax of judgment and salvation. This is no idle threat. This is no pie in the sky when I die because Christ has proved the certainty and the reality of it, by his life, death, and resurrection. And the only wise action is to heed Jesus' command to enter through the narrow gate and to travel the narrow road. But do you notice how in Isaiah's vision, actually the road is not narrow. <laughs> it's a highway, verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. 
Friends, in every generation, the way of holiness stretches before God's people. It is for those who have heard the good news about Jesus and have believed and trusted in him. This path is not for those who are godless or whose faith is a sham. And notice how God will protect his people on this road and bring them safely home. Verse 10. And those who the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the climax of our hope as Christian believers. Here at last, our, our struggles are over. Well, there are many struggles that we face. Not least the struggles with sin. This is when we finally come home. This is when we will bask in that eternal joy and happiness. For every one of us here, there'll be things that currently cause us, what does it put, sorrow and sighing. But if we're trusting in Jesus on that day, those things will be a distant memory. They have flown away. Whatever our current situation may may be, whatever the state of our mental health, whatever our temperament, God wants us to trust in the Lord Jesus and to keep trusting and obeying him. Trust in the Lord, the rock eternal. And that is why through Isaiah, he has left us with these two visions. One of eternal destruction. One, the other, of eternal joy and gladness. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God and Father, we thank you for these pictures of the eternal future to which history is heading. Thank you that you want us to enjoy your your glory and splendor in a world without any sorrow or sighing or pain. Thank you that you are able to save us and to keep your people. Help us, Father, to trust in you and in our Lord Jesus Christ and to keep trusting you whatever trials come our way. For we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.